Welcome to Alphabet Soup, a podcast where we're going to work our way through a wide variety of biblical topics using the alphabet. Our goal, of course, is to understand the Bible better, but we also want to find ways in which Scripture applies to our daily lives. So with that intro, let's get to it. K is for kenosis, but before we do kenosis, a couple of introductory comments. The first is that I continue to work on the house, and the current project is this room that will be both the place for Pam's sewing and craft work, and my slash office, uh, recording station, that kind of thing. Um, I'm about halfway through. I've got some books up. I uh, made Pam's sewing desk, that kind of thing. I don't know if that will have changed the acoustics for the better or worse. Eventually, like I said, we're going to get some soundproofing stuff up. Um, if, if it's worse, please forgive me. I promise uh, improvements will be coming. Won't know until I get to post-production for this episode. The second is that I've discovered I is a stubborn letter. I'm not sure we're ever going to get rid of it. When we did the letter I, I was for imputation. Then last week's episode was about Jonah, but we said before we could talk about the book of Jonah, we had to discuss the topic of biblical introduction and how important that field of of biblical study is, especially when it comes to understanding books like Jonah. This week we're going to do kenosis, a word you're probably not familiar with, Um, It is a subheading, a subsection within the incarnation. So there's another letter I. Like I said, I'm not sure we're ever going to be done with it, but we're going to talk in the first part of this episode about the incarnation and nail down some basics. It's a huge area. You pick up any systematic theology, you'll find a large section on incarnation. Eventually, within that section, you'll get to kenosis, a very important word, a very important concept related to the incarnation. We'll get there probably in the second half of this episode. We'll see how my uh, budgeting of time goes. The word incarnation applies only to Jesus Christ. We were not incarnated. We were born. That is to say, we came into existence at our birth. The word incarnation implies necessarily someone who pre-existed and then takes on a body. So you can see why this word applies only to Christ, who is eternal and therefore was incarnated in Bethlehem. Um, The content of this doctrine is difficult. I struggle with this one, and here's why. The incarnation is a miracle. It is a one-off, miraculous work of God that defies our full understanding. It is incomprehensible. It is inscrutable. That's one of my favorite words. Maybe next time around, I will be for inscrutable. It, it, It cannot be fully understood. That does not mean we should just wave our hands at it and dismiss it because the incarnation is absolutely essential to everything we are and will be as the children of God. We cannot be the children of God without the incarnation. Um, If you go back and look at the history of Christianity, dating back to the very first century, dating back to New Testament times, the incarnation has been the focal point of many heresies. 
In fact, uh, I, I read one guy that said it is at the root of all heresies. They all start with a false, unbiblical understanding of the Incarnation. Again, that's something we'll touch a little bit on as we move forward. As early as the book of 1 John, which was written in the early 90s probably, we get uh, John addressing false views, heretical views, of who Jesus Christ was and the union of his eternal and uh, divine nature with a human nature. So it's important that we understand it. At the same time, we can never wrap our minds fully around it because it is a miraculous work of God. And, and so how far do we take this? I was once told by a, a colleague that I was intellectually lazy. I'm not sure what that meant. I think it meant that I'm not as smart as he was. And th that is certainly the, the case. Um, there is this point at which the believer is intellectually lazy. Uh, th th that certainly happens. Um, there, is a, there is a believer who says, oh, I don't want to understand it. I just want to feel it. I just want to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That flies in the face of the New Testament, which has all kinds of teaching. Paul told Timothy, teach the word. There is content there that we are to learn. It is not just a feel-good faith. It is a faith that should inform our intellect guide our actions, and direct our feelings, okay? So, you can, in fact, be intellectually lazy with the Christian faith. That said, there is another extreme out at the opposite end, and that is, I have to understand everything. That is hubris. That is pride. And there are some things that we simply cannot and will not ever understand, maybe even on the other side of glory. People who want to understand everything end up almost always warping some dimension of that theological truth to get it fit into their finite brains. There are some things related to God and what he does, who he is and what he does, that we cannot ever wrap our heads around because he is infinite and we are finite in every dimension, including our understanding. Where is that point uh, for example, in the specifics of the Incarnation, where is, it, uh, where is the point where we say we will have a childlike faith? There is a childish faith which shuts off the brain. But Christ said those of, uh, those of us who would come to him must come like little children, which means we must accept what he says because he says it, whether or not we can fully understand it. I'm not sure where that line is with regard to the Incarnation. Maybe you will think that uh, our discussion of it in this episode is too cursory and, and needs to go slower and deeper. Maybe this will just say, I can't get that. I know where my point is. Uh, I've wrestled with this. I've read it. Uh, we're going to press ahead, but I'm going to warn you ahead of time. I will get to a place where I'll say, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. Can't wrap my head around it, don't need to wrap my head around it, just need to accept it as truth because God says it. Okay, we're going to start 
understanding or, or, or uh, yeah, understanding uh, parts of the incarnation, given what I just said, huh? By discussing the virgin birth, and I'm going to blow your mind a little bit here by saying, you don't believe in the virgin birth. I don't believe in the virgin birth. Now, let me explain what that, what that statement means, and you'll understand. Roman Catholic dogma, official Roman Catholic dogma, has the virgin birth. Uh, we have a virgin conception. We believe that Jesus was born normally, a vaginal birth, huh? a normal birth. And the New Testament, the Gospels teach us that after Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, she had other children whom Joseph fathered. Uh, John refers to his brothers and sisters. The Roman Catholics, their official dogma, their official doctrine, believes in the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she never had intercourse with John, and that her, her vagina remained, how shall we say, unpenetrated from above or below. Roman Catholic dog, uh, dogma believes in sort of a, a, a divine C-section, so that her hymen was always preserved intact. We then believe in a virgin conception, but not a virgin birth. Uh, Roman Catholics, because they believe that her birth canal was never penetrated from above or below, believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, and uh, although they don't use this term, what amounts to, as I said, a divine C-section. That said, because the term virgin birth is so widely used and has been so, uh, so for centuries, I'm going to continue to use it. I just thought we would, we would stop and just make that point. You and I are going to use the term virgin birth with, this, with a more particular understanding of virgin conception. Just a, just a little detail that you might find interesting. Maybe you don't. I'll tell you what, man. I used it in a class I was guest teaching. Um, I taught for a pastor who took the summers off and had a Wednesday night Bible study, asked me to teach it, uh, completely different denominations. I forget if he was Lutheran or Episcopal or something. And I taught that about Catholic dogma and said, uh, technically, we don't believe. They blew up. I, I was not invited back from that point on. I hope I haven't blown you up. If I have, I'm sorry. Okay, the virgin birth is mentioned only in Matthew and Luke. Matthew 1 and Luke 2. No other place in the New Testament is it mentioned. What does that say? Maybe nothing. Maybe it says, hey, listen, if it's taught in two passages, it, it's true, and it doesn't have to be taught in 18 other places. Or maybe it suggests this is a secondary doctrine. It is not essential to salvation. You can get saved. You can become a child of God through faith in Christ's substitutionary death for you without understanding or even knowing anything about the virgin birth. Agreed? So, let's, let's start by putting the virgin birth in that perspective and then remind ourselves this is another one we will never be able to wrap our heads around completely. Luke 1, verses 34 and 35. And Mary said to the angel, uh, this is when he tells her that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. 
Uh, Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Mary couldn't wrap her head around that, and so her response was, and I love this, this is a great sermon, I've preached it many times, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said. I don't understand it, I don't know why, but I submit to the Lord's will. What a powerful statement. Um, I have, at at, times past, tried to figure this out just based on the number of chromosomes. Now, I've frankly, I've forgotten the number. I think it's 36, but I'm not sure. If it's a virgin birth, how do you how do you do that? You can't have half of 36 chromosomes or whatever the number is. Um, I read I read in my prep for this lesson that there was in fact a sperm, but the sperm was provided miraculously by God so that you could have the full number of chromosomes. I don't know. I'm ready to let that go. I, I struggled with that and finally decided, nah, it doesn't really matter. Uh, there were a full number of chromosomes. Why then the virgin birth? Why did God do this miracle of however he did it, whether he created a sperm that came directly from God or however he pulled it off, why did he do it? There are a couple of different possibilities. The first one is that the sexual act is in and of itself sinful, and therefore he had to be born of a virgin, or the very act that produced him would would make him the product of a sinful act. Um, we're going to blow that off. We're going to dismiss that out of hand because God created us sexual beings, male and female, all of the animal kingdom. God created male and female, including Adam and Eve. And he wouldn't have done that if that was going to lead to a sinful act. The second potential answer uh, comes to us, is, is centuries old, but came to us in the 20th century through a guy named Arthur Custance, who wrote a book, the title of which I don't remember, but um, he wrote several interesting books. He's the father of the gap theory. If you know anything about the gap theory uh, that explains uh, the creation and how old the earth is, that's Sir Arthur Custance. Anyhow, he said that the sin nature is passed down through the male of the species, that it is Adam who contributed the uh, sin-corrupted sperm, and every male since then, that by virtue of a virgin birth, without the male, he was born without a sin nature. I don't think that works either. Is is sin a, what biologists call, a sex-linked trait? Is the woman, therefore, absent a sin nature? I don't think you can do that because, among other things, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 that Eve sinned first. Um, How can she be free of a sin nature when Paul says she was deceived and sinned first and then she led Adam into sin? With all due respect to uh, Sir Arthur Custance, who may have been on to something with his gap theory, I haven't decided about that yet, we're going to dismiss that um, sin is a sex-linked trait. Instead, and, and here I'm going to go back to Erickson, 
who he's his book, his systematic theology titled Christian Theology, is one that is just always in the stack of books that I use when I'm prepping here. He gives four reasons. The first reason is our sal- is to show to us that our salvation is miraculous, including the very arrival of the Savior. Everything about this is a work of a miraculous work of God. Secondly, our salvation is an act of grace, as demonstrated by the fact that God chose Mary, a nondescript ordinary girl, uneducated from Galilee, which was sort of like the Arkansas of Israel. Uh, the people of Judea looked down on the people of Galilee as being hicks, as being crude and base and uneducated. Well, they were basically uneducated as a group, and Mary was very, very ordinary. We know nothing about her upbringing or anything else. It is an act of God's grace that he chose someone as humble as Mary to be the mother of our Savior. It demonstrates the uniqueness of Jesus, the only person who had an incarnation as opposed to a birth. He wants to show us from the very beginning, this is something unique and special. And then finally, it demonstrates God's sovereignty over nature, that he can do what he wills, when he wills, and how he wills, that the uh, virgin birth is a miracle because God is sovereign over nature. All right, so what we have is a child that is born um, through virgin birth, through virgin conception, to be more precise. And now, here again, we're going to get into tricky stuff. We'll never be able to completely wrap our heads around. And is unique. Here, there are... um, there are some very complex things, as I said, some inscrutable things. Uh, The Bible teaches us more than we can understand. However, it sets guardrails, if you will. It It says, here's what it is. Don't go outside this. And as we've said, um, heresies go outside these rails and deny one of the clear things that Scripture teaches. One of the books I I read prepping here, and I I don't remember which one it was. I, I should take notes on these. I read it and I say, man, that's a good point. He says, there are six essential heresies regarding the person of Christ. And then he goes through and lists them. And there are three on one uh, one side, three that veer to the left, if you will, and three that veer to the right. That was good. I should go back and find that. It may have been ends. Anyhow, um, the teachings of Scripture regarding the person of Christ, if even if we can't understand them, serve as guardrails to keep us within an orthodox, within a correct view of the Savior, a view that we, again, may not fully understand, but keep us from wandering off into a variety of heresies. And you know what? As I'm saying that, I think maybe next time through, H should be for heresies, specifically regarding the person of Christ. I'll go find that book, and we'll talk about the six of them. Hmm? The word that theologians use, that, that Orthodox theologians use, is the theanthropic person of Christ. That's a big word, but it's not that difficult. Theos. Theos is the Greek word for God. It's the most basic word for God. Anthropos, anthropology, 
is the word for man. So theanthropic person of Christ means literally the God person. And what it says is this person has two natures. Important to realize this is a big deal. This is a big deal because some of those heresies mess this up. That he is one person with two natures. He is not two persons in one body. There is not a human person and alongside it a divine person living in one body. He is one person. However, he has two natures. He is fully human and fully divine. And this precise description is absolutely essential to our salvation. If he is not fully divine, he is not perfect and cannot die for our sins. He will have his own sins he has to die for. If he is not fully human, it is not an equivalency. He can't die for my sins because he's not like me. And the book of Hebrews says, because he is fully human, he can be a merciful and, and faithful high priest. He is fully divine. Colossians 2, 9. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. There is no compromise of his deity. Hebrews 1, 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So again, there is no compromise. There is no diminution. There is no lessening. There is no compromise. He is fully divine. Scriptures make that clear over and over and over again. Uh, that If you don't remember anything else about the deity of Christ, remember John 1, Colossians 2, and Hebrews 1. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then verse 14, the Word became flesh. Hebrews 2, 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then Hebrews 1, 3, the exact imprint of his nature. Um, John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 2, okay? He is also fully human. He has all the characteristics, traits, and attributes of being human. He hungered. He thirsted. He got tired. All of those things that we do, he does. How can God be thirsty? How can God be tired? There's where we come to kenosis. So what we're going to do is stop now with what we've got and use that as a foundation. Hey, listen, I understand. I've already thrown you a lot of stuff, some of which, like I said, we can't wrap our heads around, but there it is. We accept it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Now we'll go on to part two and talk about kenosis, which has to do with how the divine and human natures combine in the one person of the Savior. Please join me in part two. 